to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, board meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The KBOO Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month starting at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Leah Douglas. She is a staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, better known as FERN. This is an independent, nonprofit newsroom that publishes investigative and explanatory reporting on food, agriculture, and environmental health. Ms. Douglas's reporting on corporate power and big business in the food and agriculture sectors has been widely published in The Guardian, The Nation, The Washington Post, Mother Jones, NPR, Time, Fortune, and many more. Ms. Douglas was the 2020 recipient of the National Farmers Union Milt Haeckel Award for Excellence in Agricultural Reporting, and she is a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the New Economies Reporting Project Finance Solutions Fellowship. Since April of 2020, Ms. Douglas has led the national coverage of the spread of COVID-19 at meatpacking plants, food processing facilities, and on farms. And I'll be providing a link to that work in our program notes. Welcome, Leah. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to bring your voice and work to our listeners because I've been following your writing for several years. And I think that the work that you did on COVID-19 in meatpacking plants actually lends well to a very recent report that you did on racism in Future Farmers of America. I believe that's now just called FFA. And I think that these issues are related because many of the sponsors of FFA actually support this industrial model of agriculture, which is feeding the fires of COVID-19 in the industrial farming network across our country. So I'm thrilled to have you here to dive into both of those issues. First, though, let me just ask you, how did you become interested in food and agriculture? Oh, I started my journey to the work that I do now, maybe when I was 18, 17 or 18, I became really fascinated with cooking and um, thought I might become a chef or a baker for a long time when I was a teenager. And when I went to college, I sort of morphed that interest into studying agriculture and food systems and uh, just sort of captured my attention and interests. And I've just been writing about it and studying it ever since. So do you have a degree in journalism? I do not. My undergrad degree was in sustainable agriculture and food systems. Well, I have to say you're an excellent reporter. You're an excellent writer. And anybody who takes a look at some of your stories will see that as well. It's quite evident. So thank you. The work that you bring to your readers is critically important in understanding how everything is connected. I want to start with the COVID-19 story in meatpacking plants because I live in the Midwest and we see on the map that you provided these huge pockets of outbreaks in the Midwest, largely related to meatpacking and food processing facilities. Tell me what led you to want to investigate this topic. Absolutely. So when the pandemic began in March, we at Fern, you know, just like every other newsroom in the country, immediately began covering as quickly as we could, you know, what are the impacts of this in our beat. And in our case, that's food and agriculture. And so we were covering all different topics related to that food security. At the time, folks were really concerned about a food shortage. And one of those topics that was quickly emerging was the spread of the virus at meatpacking facilities and resulting closures. And in March and April, we saw you know, almost two dozen meatpacking plants closed down for a substantial amount of time at some point. 
And there were sort of a flood of these reports coming in of COVID spreading and these new outbreaks. But in the course of my reporting, I couldn't find a database that was aggregating that information to really know, okay, what's the context for these new outbreaks and how many cases are there overall? So I began compiling that information myself in April and published the first version of this map on April 22nd. At the time, there was about 40 outbreaks mapped on that version. And it was just at the beginning of this phenomenon and had no idea, of course, that almost six months later, there are almost 900 outbreaks now in the database and approaching 60,000 cases among food system workers all over the country, I believe in 45 states. Yeah, this is just remarkable. And I think in looking at your maps, first of all, you've done a great job in visualizing numbers. And I think this is part of the hardship that we face. You know, we hear about tens of thousands But unless you are looking at a map visually and you see these big bubbles and then you've got pie-shaped wedges to show where the cases are, you realize, wow, this is a significant problem. But in the number story, even in my own community and state, we have discrepancies in numbers. And you did a video, I think it was a Facebook Live session, where you talked about some of the hardships in collecting the data. As you mentioned, there isn't a central collecting point. You'd think the CDC would be doing that for the country. But tell me how you've navigated getting the data, getting the numbers. Sure. So that's definitely been the biggest hurdle in this project is accessing accurate data and standardizing the data to the point that it can be used reliably in this database. And early on in the pandemic, most of the information was coming from news reports. So it's just sort of drinking from a fire hose. Local news all over the country was covering outbreaks in their community. And COVID was so novel at the time, it really captured the public attention. And over time, you know, as obviously we're dealing with so many crises in the country right now, and every news organization is strapped. So some of that attention has needed to focus elsewhere. And there's been other data sources arising to to try to to use as well. So I still rely on local news reports, but I also, there's a few states that are providing information on a regular basis about outbreaks that I've been able to tap into. At the same time, I've reported extensively on how both the public and the private sector have created a number of obstacles to getting reliable data about COVID-19 spread at, at food facilities and the private sector there's really not a common practice among any employer to report COVID-19 outbreaks in cases. There was a small window when Tyson Foods was testing its workers, but that initiative has now ended. And since then, the the companies, especially meat packers, have really resisted giving any information about how many of their workers are sick or have died of COVID. And in the public sector, unfortunately, there's also a lot of reticence to share data. I did a survey of all 50 states to see who would give me information on requests about cases and outbreaks. And I found just four states were willing to share really comprehensive data on how food system workers were affected by COVID. So there's a combination of the data isn't being collected. And it's hard to know exactly where and how it's not being collected because, again, it's absent. And the data that is there, entities are very unwilling to share it. So I always share the caveat with these numbers that as striking as they are, and this is the best tally that we have, it's absolutely an undercount just given how many flaws there are in the the data set available. Mm, Absolutely. And even with the numbers that you have, I think it's quite remarkable. You've also gone so far as to show which of the industries are leading in illness. And so Tyson rises to the top. They are certainly, if these numbers are indeed reflecting the true numbers, Tyson Food has the most cases and the most deaths. Tell me why you think that is. Why is Tyson worse than, say, JBS or Smithfield? Well, that's a great question. And certainly Tyson has received a lot of scrutiny and criticism from worker advocates and food system advocates, labor for the entire pandemic for the way that its workers have become sick at such a disproportionate rate. It's worth noting Tyson is the largest meatpacker in the country, so it has the highest number of workers, the largest workforce. At the same time, according to my numbers, about approaching 10% of Tyson workers have contracted COVID, whereas for JBS and Smithfield, with number two and three meat packers, that's around four or five percent. So that percentage comparison helps us to see that more Tyson workers are, are actually have been confirmed to have contracted COVID. And again, I mentioned there was a period of time when Tyson was disclosing cases at and outbreaks at some of its facilities that definitely 
spiked their numbers in JBS and Smithfield have not had a comparable practice of transparency even for a short time. But there are certainly reports from Tyson facilities that workers had really sporadic and inconsistent access to protective equipment at the beginning of the pandemic and even ongoing and that the company was not responsive to those demands. Similar allegations have been brought against the other meatpackers as well. So that's some of the reasons why we're seeing those huge numbers from Tyson. Right. Yeah, it's so tragic. And then there was a story that was reported by Fern this morning that came in my inbox about a worker who died. This was at a on a farm, farm processing in Texas, where he had become ill. The worker ended up dying, unfortunately, But there was no support from the industry, no medication, no doctor's visits. Is that a fairly ubiquitous practice where the workers are left on their own? They don't have access to health care if they do become ill? Well, it's absolutely always needs to be mentioned that food system workers are a vulnerable workforce by and large. So it's predominantly people of color. Many immigrants, according to some estimates in the meatpacking sector, as much as 50% of the workforce are immigrants, some undocumented, especially in the farm sector. We know that there are many, many undocumented farm workers in the U.S. So all of those different identities and levels of exposure to risk do present burdens for the workers in terms of getting adequate care, in terms of having access to paid time off, and so on. So I think part of the reason why it feels it's such a mandate to me to do this work is We know that this is a workforce that is not consistently unionized. These are very low paying jobs, uh, very high risk and dangerous jobs, you know, even without the added risk of COVID and workers who would face real difficulty if they decided not to go back to work because of the risk of COVID, which many have. And that when I've seen many discussions of workers having to make that choice of do I protect my safety and health and the health of my family or do I make money? And that's an impossible choice, obviously. So absolutely, many of the workers across all of these sectors are extremely vulnerable. Mm, Yeah. And also fearful of going to get medical care oftentimes because they're fearful of being deported. So it's just a horrible situation from all angles that we look at it. So Tyson Foods, if memory serves me correctly, has also been an employer of prison labor. Do you know if that is still going on? Because there's also, of course, the large outbreaks that we see in prisons. You know, I'm not too familiar with the current state of that. I know that prison work crews or crews of incarcerated people are common across the country. And I know that some states had stopped the use of those work crews at the beginning of the pandemic because of these dual risks, the risk in the prison and the risk at the farm or the plant, but I'm not sure specifically Tyson's implication in that. Sure. Well, we'll have to do some more digging on that. Everything is connected at the end of the day. Well, I wonder, is there anything else that you want to bring forth from your continuing documentation of this before we move into other subject matter? Well, you know, I always encourage folks to keep this issue front of mind. I know that the first several months of the pandemic, the issues about around the food system and COVID really captured national attention. And of course, now there are many other issues capturing national attention, and it's a very difficult time to keep everything in your head at once. But I really encourage folks to seek out this information. Cases are still rising in these sectors. And if anything, the lack of spotlight or the diminishing spotlight makes it less likely that there'll be substantial changes to how the sector is regulated and the experience that workers are having. So especially moving into the fall and winter when we're anticipating some new spikes, I just encourage folks to really keep this issue front of mind. Good. And how often are you updating these maps? I update them every weekday around 12 p.m. Eastern. Oh, my goodness. Okay. This is great current data. Well, we're about halfway through. So let me just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Leah Douglas. She is a staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, also known as FERN. She has done some remarkable reporting over the years on issues that affect us on and beyond our plate. I wanted to talk about COVID-19 because that is absolutely an issue that is in the spotlight today, as well as racism. And ironically, you published a report on September 8th of 2020 about the nation's largest student farm organization, FFA, And there was a racist incident involving a leader of the 700,000-member organization, which has spurred a backlash and revealed actually a long history of inequity. 
Tell me, how did you first decide to investigate the story and dig deeper into FFA? Sure. So the incident that the story revolves around happened in June. And shortly after it occurred, a colleague sent me a message and said, you know, hey, just FYI, there's this whole discussion going on in the FFA community around racism and around this incident. And I'm not an FFA alum myself and was only sort of tangentially familiar with the organization through my work. But as I started digging, it became clear that this one incident had actually given way to a, a really deep, really crucial conversation that the FFA community was having around its own racial disparities, racist encounters that Black members had had with white members, and the history of the organization as well. So once I was sort of piqued, my interest was directed at it, it became a really rich story. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm interested in FFA because I'm interested in the narratives that we tell about farming. And back in 2014, I had received a, like you, a tip from someone who said, hey, you got to check out the keynote speech at the FFA National Convention. And that particular convention, their keynote speaker was Donnie Smith Tyson. And ironically, Tyson Foods is actually a big donor of the FFA. And here we see Tyson Foods not being a good player when it comes to COVID-19 and worker protections. And then you see them giving a keynote speech at the largest student farming organization in the country. So that piqued my interest, how the students and what the students are learning through this organization. And then your story piqued my interest because of one individual, Xavier Morgan, who enrolled in FFA in his Chicago high school for agricultural sciences. And he felt very much welcomed by the organization and then as the Black Lives Matter campaign or movement got fired up, there started to be some negative messages in social media. And immediately he felt like this isn't the support he thought he was getting. So tell me about Xavier's story. Sure. So and just for context for folks, you know, I know many folks are familiar with FFA, but this is, a, as you said, the largest student farm organization in the country, a $31 million organization with 700,000 members in every state and a very influential organization in farming communities that has long been linked with cultivating the next generation of farmers, which especially now, as we know, the current farmer age is rising and many farmers are aging out. You know, this is a very active discussion. How do we keep young farmers coming into this profession? So the FFA is, is an important institution and in many people's lives. And so when I first encountered Xavier, I had learned about this incident that occurred in June where a former FFA leader had posted on her Instagram, a white woman posted on her Instagram about why all of her followers should support Black Lives Matter. And this was shortly after the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. And of course, you know, discourse around police violence and racism was really capturing our national attention. And this video went viral and caused a lot of conversation. And one of the people who commented on it was a current national officer, which is FFA's highest leadership role for students. He left a derogatory comment saying, if it's so bad and primitive here, then go to another country, to paraphrase. And that comment from such a prominent leader really set off a lot of backlash. And uh, Xavier and some other FFA alumni started thinking, you know, what could be done about this? Can we raise this to FFA's professional leadership? But then the next day after that uh, initial remark was made, another FFA member discovered very like racist, xenophobic, and homophobic memes on this national officer's Facebook from several years ago, from 2013 to 2019. And so this was even more disturbing to this group of alumni, and they called for this leader's removal, and he was removed, and chose to take that moment of a lot of attention on racism and FFA to push for the organization to really make good on a lot of its promises of, around racial diversity that really have failed for the last many decades. And so that, again, as I said, gave way to this really wide-spanning conversation about many Black members sharing experiences of racism that they'd had and how the organization has really failed to diversify despite many attempts to do so. Mm -hmm. It's also not diversified in terms of their sponsors. It's not diversified in terms of what kind of messaging students receive at the conventions. 
And I think that's disturbing, especially because of what COVID-19 has revealed about our food system, that the industrial model isn't working. It's leaving many of us at risk. And ironically, when we talk about getting food access, we've seen that the smaller sized farms, those farms that have CSAs, or Community Supported Agriculture, they haven't been able to keep up with the increased demand. So I'm hoping that we're going to see a shift in how we produce our food. But the FFA is clearly representative of the industrial model. And I think that the faces of FFA mirror what we've seen in terms of racism, even within USDA. So it's not this big surprise that we see this. Well, sure. Of course, you know, FFA has always been linked with agribusiness. Something like 80% of FFA go on to work in agribusiness, including Xavier, the primary character in my story, who works at Hormel Foods, which is a meat packer, and many more of the students have aspirations to those type of careers. And I should say, everyone I spoke with for the interviews for this story was sure to tell me that they had a really positive experience with their FFA chapter. Lifelong friendships, real leadership development, you know, they're all so insightful and able to really speak about how they feel and think very clearly. So they clearly had walked away with major value add from their experience in FFA. And it was these broader trends and broader concerns that they pointed me to that they would go from their very supportive local chapter and to a national convention and be encountering types of bigotry or discrimination that didn't feel like they upheld FFA's values to these students. So I think that's really underscoring the cultural divide is not everyone at FFA is culturally homogenous, politically homogenous, has the same opinions about how the organization should work, but for its 100-year history, it has overwhelmingly represented the interests of white students who have a specific outlook, and it's been very conservative in terms of its approach to gender politics and to racial politics, as we discussed, and and also just engaging in capital P politics. Mm-hmm. In preparation for this interview, I went online and I was looking at the FFA 93rd National Convention, which is going to be virtual this year. It's held in October of 2020. And all of the individuals who were speaking to promote this conference were white. So despite the fact that this is so recent, that there's been a tension to lack of diversity within the organization, you would think that there would be at least one person of color in the promotion for the conference. That's a great point. And I should say, as of the publication of the story in September, which, of course, this incident, this whole series of dominoes that fell around the discussion of race at FFA began in June. So it's several months after that incident that the story was published. The alumni who are organizing around pushing the organization forward on race said that they had a long list of demands that the organization engaged with, and it has not yet, except for maybe one issue, really engaged with that list of demands. So there is definitely a ways to go. Yeah. Well, it is clear to me that FFA members do learn good leadership, as you mentioned, and I think they also learn incredible communication skills. So the young people who get up on the stage really are very well prepared to communicate this industrial narrative which is overwhelmingly the message that they are receiving. Part of your story that I felt really needed to be raised here was that some people in FFA chapters around the country have been confronted with Confederate flags. A visit to Missouri where a white student told a member that she wouldn't listen to her presentation because she was black. I wish that there was as much emphasis on unifying farmers, bringing together people of all colors to truly feed the world, that's one of their big messages, rather than allowing this kind of racism to continue. Do you have any messages for people who want to have an influence in this organization? How do we get through? Well, I think that in terms of what was shared with me from the FFA alumni who had those experiences, their real mission in doing this work is to try to make agriculture, agribusiness, rural issues, uh, these different areas of work and focus, places where people of all backgrounds can really be heard and have their needs addressed. That was the driving concern when I asked folks, you know, why, you know, you're an alumni, you could walk away, like, why are you still pushing this organization? And they felt a strong sense of obligation and responsibility to make agriculture and the field that they work in a racially diverse and accepting 
place for all identities and backgrounds. And I was really moved by that. I think that there's a lot of that hasn't been necessarily the direction that FFA or the broader agricultural sector has been moving. We know that over the last hundred years, we've lost a huge percentage of our black farmers in the country. I mean, it still remains a very difficult sector to break into for people of all marginalized backgrounds. So that was the driving charge for these students was to try to change that with their efforts. Mm-hmm. How can we help them? Well, I would say that folks should read the story, like familiarize yourself with these issues. Of course, many folks listening will be familiar with FFA chapters in your community. I know that when I published this story, I received a huge amount of feedback from folks of all racial backgrounds who said, this is so resonant with what I've experienced in my community. You know, the FFA didn't really make space for a diverse set of opinions and there were Confederate flags, there were other and negative experiences that folks had. So it appears that this is a, a common experience. And so folks who do have FFA in their community, I'd encourage them to look around and, and try to find out what's going on. Mm-hmm, I agree. And I would also encourage people to visit the FFA website and look at funding sources. I think that when you see million-dollar sponsors who are part of the industrial system, Corteva, Bayer, who bought Monsanto, I don't think these students are going to be learning about the kinds of agriculture, the indigenous wisdom, for example, that comes with different forms of agriculture that we really need right now in the face of these horrific climate events. You know, the purpose of my story was to really draw out the issues around racism that FSA is having. You know, I'll say again that a lot of folks that I spoke with had a really positive experience and are going on to work in the sector or to be agricultural educators and are trying to figure out how to bridge in multiple types of agricultural practices in their community. So I think it's a really nuanced issue and, and I do hope that folks will check it out. Well, Leah, I am going to make sure that we have links to this story as well as your map in our program notes. I want to make sure that I give you a minute just to leave our listeners with any last points that you'd like to make. Thanks. I would just say again, I hope folks will keep food and ag issues top of mind this fall and winter, especially around COVID. And uh, you can check out all of Fern's reporting. We have ongoing coverage of the pandemic around food insecurity. We're always covering what's going on on the Hill related to food and ag and my reporting on the pandemic and other issues. So you can check us out at thefern.org. And yeah, I hope everyone will stay looped in. Absolutely. And I do want to let people know that there are stories about antibiotic resistance on the Fern site as well, which is very important in linking health to all of this. Fern is supported by public donation. Is that correct? Yep. We're a nonprofit and it's a combination of reader supported and nonprofit funder supported as well. Good. So if you go online and you read stories that you like and you think that this reporting is something that you want to see more of and have more support, then by all means, please make a donation to Fern to help continue that work. Well, we've got to close. I want to thank you so much for your time. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Leah Douglas, staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network. This is an independent, nonprofit newsroom that publishes investigative and explanatory reporting on food, agriculture, and environmental health that you really won't find anywhere else. So thank you so much, Leah, for all of your time and hard work. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Benjamin Cohen. He is an environmental historian, chair of engineering studies, and associate professor at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. Dr. Cohen is a prolific writer and serves on the editorial board for MIT Press's History for a Sustainable Future book series. He is the author of Notes from the Ground, Science, Soil, and Society in the American Countryside, and Pure Adulteration, 
Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food, which is the book we will be discussing today. Dr. Cohen received his Ph.D. on the history track of science and technology studies from Virginia Tech, and from 2005 until 2011, he taught in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at the University of Virginia, where he was the founder and director of the University of Virginia Food Collaborative. I am thrilled to have you with me. Welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so so grateful that you want to talk about the book. Absolutely. I think we should start with why you wrote this book. What led you to food adulteration? You've got degrees in history and engineering. Why food and why food adulteration? Thank you for asking. I think the best answer is I had written and done work that became Notes from the Ground, which is a study of the origins of agricultural chemistry. And that work brought me from the 1790s to the 1860s. And I became interested in what happened after that period, once agriculture and chemistry came together as a profession, and in many ways as the seedbed for how the USDA, which was founded in 1862, how they, how they structured what they were going to do. When I got to that next era and started to understand or, or read into the post-Civil War period, it took me much closer to food and new markets and new manufacturing processes and a little bit away from agriculture and farming. And that very transition started to fascinate me about what does this mean for how we understand what our food is? What does this mean for how we maintain our, our trust and faith in a food system, which was rapidly changing and rapidly expanding and rapidly industrializing. So some of the earlier questions I had about how do we know what the soil is? How do we know what the best kind of farming is? This, these are kind of the, the basic questions of the first book. Led me to more of those knowledge questions. How do people know that their food was what they thought it was? How do people know that the scientific analysis meant something to them? And uh, that's a story that happens in the second half of the century. Mm-hmm. And we're still asking those questions today. But before we get to today, I think we should define adulteration. That's good, too. It's, it is, uh, I think I say at one point in the book, it, it has a very Victorian feel to it, the word. We don't generally use it as much as they used to, adulteration. Adulteration, at least in the way that they talked about it, maybe we still do, uh, refers to contaminated or corrupted or even deceptive foods. Adulteration as uh, proposed to be in opposition to pure, something that's not what it says it is. Mm-hmm. And something can get adulterated accidentally. Things can get contaminated along the way. That's not improbable. But things could be intentionally adulterated. They could be, they could be spiked with what they would call adulterants, with chemicals or additives that some people think shouldn't be there. And so the end result is to label that or refer to that as an adulterated product. I'm really glad you brought up contaminated because in my notes in preparing for this interview, I was really curious about the differences between those two words. And I was going to ask you if you felt that it would be a fair thing to say that adulterated food is also the same as contaminated food. And I'm glad you also mentioned this idea that there is some honest contamination that occurs like, oh, I didn't realize that the metal pot that I was using was contaminating my food with a metal. But then there's also the purposeful adulteration. And that's really what your book focuses on is just this mindful adulteration, really, of so much of food in history. And I don't know about you, but when I was reading this book and really riveted by your historical data that you pulled forth, I had no idea how widespread food adulteration was throughout history. Were you surprised as well? I was. I had a sense that this wasn't a new phenomenon. So I'm quick to point out, hopefully in the book and when I talk about it, that adulteration or contaminated food, whether it's honest or dishonest, isn't a new thing in the later 1800s, although they called that the era of adulteration. And they named it the Pure Food Crusades, which suggests to some that here's some singular event that is new on this world stage, but as long as we've had food, we've had food adulteration. As long as people have negotiated or tried to sell or handle foods and pass it off from one person to another, there's been some mode of distrust or some mode of contamination. What struck me was that there's something new going on 
with the rise of manufacturing food in the later 1800s. And that's what becomes different is now people are finding foods that are coming from factories instead of from fields. And they're really exercised about this question of purity, adulteration, but also nature and artifice. So it felt like it was not natural. You know, we use these words so generally. Um, it's natural, it's not natural. Who gets to define that? I didn't want to do the project and claim that I had the answer to that. I wanted to find out what the people at the time thought. And what they were much more motivated by was arguing over purity as a proxy for natural and adulteration as a proxy for artificial, something contrived. And surrounding all of those various loose, fake cultural terms was a concern that they just they couldn't know. Like, what were the means for them to understand? How could they determine if it was pure or adulterated? How could they determine if it was natural? They had to start making new arguments when these things started to come from factories, which in some ways, by definition, is artificial. It's made by humans. It's not from nature, so it must be fake. It must be adulterated. Versus other people saying, I don't know. We might be able to make foods more cheaply. Maybe we could feed more people. Maybe it's more efficient. Why is it necessarily bad if it's from a factory? Hmm. Well, in preparing for this interview, I also went back to some of the interviews that you did. And one of the people you interviewed, gosh, I think this was over a decade ago, was Michael Pollan. And you had a discussion with him about economics. And you even mentioned this in your book with regard to the role of capitalism and the role that the profit motive plays or just looking at food buying through this economic lens rather than a much broader perspective. So do you think that this fraudulent adulteration is more prevalent in capitalistic societies? It's hard to say if it's more prevalent in the century since. By contrast, we've had so much concern for, just as one example, over like Chinese imports, which is not necessarily or entirely coming from a capitalist basis. But you do find throughout the growth of not just industrialization, but industrial capitalism, that that profit motive exercises itself in a new and perhaps more virulent way. So I think it exacerbates probabilities in ways that hadn't existed before the capitalist marketplace really structured food production. So I, I, I'm kind of on board with the way you phrased it of the impetus for fraudulence is definitely connected to market dynamics and how people understand who they are on the open marketplace. And that too, you'll, you'll hear this a lot in my answers, that too is so in flux in the later 1800s in this period of, of wild, almost like wildcat capitalism the origins of, of our modern capitalist marketplaces, at least in the form that we recognize them now. Yeah. It's so interesting. You and I probably were both riveted by the PBS special on food adulteration, The Poison Squad, and right. Harvey Wiley, who you discuss here in the book, the idea that there were people who were fighting against this adulteration. And they came up against the industrial forces that were trying to drive policy to protect profit. Of course, we see this still today. But there were policies that were put in place that would help protect the consumer in the market. And so I like to think that today we have greater protections because of those heroes in the past. I think that's true. I think what happens is the end point of this book is is right what you were speaking to, that the Harvey Wiley story and the Poison Squad, by the way, you know, a plug for a great book called The Poison Squad by Deborah Blum, who that documentary was based on. This is from early 2020 when the show came out. She's helping narrate the what is chapter eight for me, so it's the end of my story, but it's the passage of a 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, this famous act, which most people know if they know it at all because... They think of the jungle in Upton Sinclair. Right. So they think of that kind of contamination, like that's the imagery. Because his book came out in the winter of 1906, and it was kind of like the nail in the coffin for the what they would call the pro-adulteration camp. That law is, is the basis for what becomes the FDA, for the Modern Food and Drug Administration. And right. So if we have better protections now, it is in large part because of the development of modern, that bureaucratic institution, which is meant to try to protect the entire population, as opposed to the prior generation, which had a more of a caveat emptor policy, you know, buyer be 
the to that answer without uh, rambling on is new foods come up, new techniques occur, new manufacturing processes are developed, and new questions arise that we're always chasing down. It's, it's, we're always being outpaced. And they're not really just technical questions of do you know what your food is. They're increasingly expanding the same forms of confusion that we find in the later 1800s of who do you believe and who do you trust. Can we trust the FDA? Are they doing a good job? Are they being boxed out by industry? Are they being tricked by imports in other countries? These kind of questions keep going on. So I think of it as like a, a game of whack-a-mole where you can knock down one contamination, but it's going to pop up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And all we're left with, you know, you ask about uh, consumer capitalism, all we're left with is trying to fend it off as consumers. So the first part of my book is grounded in an agrarian world where people answered these questions about purity and adulteration based on their familiarity and experience with agrarian practices. They were part of the farmer's world. So when they were mad about adulteration, they could settle it within their regions, within their communities, as part of the life of a farmer. They had an environmental basis. But the end of the story, by the time you get to the FDA and what Harvey Wiley is pushing us towards, and among so many others, and Harvey Wiley is one of many, many, is by that point, so fewer of us are farmers, and we're becoming these modern consumers. So the way we decide whether or not we know our food or whether or not we're being tricked is based on the labels and the packaging and the grocer at the storefront. And we've removed our ability to understand our food through living in a agrarian society from being farmers. And that trend has only increased in the century since. Like, we're only left here in the 21st century and really throughout the 20th century to fight these fights on the consumer end of a producer-to-consumer spectrum. And really that shift happens across from the mid-1800s to the, the first part of the 1900s. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Benjamin Cohen, environmental historian, chair of engineering studies, and associate professor at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. We are talking about his terrific book titled Pure Adulteration, Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food. I want to talk about this whole idea of who is really protecting us, because in my role as a consumer educator, as someone who's a health educator, as an advocate for the consumer, my feeling is that people are outraged when they find out that their food has been contaminated. We have for so long, I think, thought that if a food is sold in the supermarket, it's got to be safe. And we've got these agencies looking over us, right? We've got the EPA, we've got the USDA, and we've got the FDA. What I don't think consumers are as aware of is how much those agencies have been stifled and limited in their control. A lot of their teeth have been removed, in other words, during different administrations. And that always makes me cringe because we then go into a marketplace that is less safe. And you talk about products certainly today that we're still struggling with. I know I look at, say, honey and olive oil. We've seen stories. You mentioned China, right? The melamine in in their products that were coming over. So, yes, we do need extreme vigilance. We can never rest What do you tell your students and people that you talk to about this in terms of what can we do to help protect the safety of our food system? That's a big question. That's a a good question. That's a hard one. When I'm talking about this with students or when we're working, you know, we have a small college farm here. We do a lot of local food justice work, food security projects. Generally, what we end up talking about is that yes, we need to reinvest and bolster the means of these agencies to be able to do the work that we built them to do, and that slowly that's been eroded or there's corporate capture. And this is over decades. It's not like something that started in 2016 or something that started in a pandemic. This is a very long process of challenges to the bureaucratic authority. So much so that bureaucracy now is a negative term, whereas it was a triumph when they founded the FDA to have a new bureau that would study this. So there's all that. Like, we need to keep the agency's um, ability to keep track of these industries. But there's also the real answer for me, or what we end up doing, is trying to come up with stronger, more 
environmentally connected ways to understand our food so that we don't only depend on buying things in the grocery store or we have a better sense of collaboration or participation in our food system. And since we're not all going to be farmers again, like we're not going backwards when 50% of the country was farmers and now like 2% are, that's not going to be the answer. But we talk about involvement in school farms, involvement in community gardens, in farm-to-school programs, in food stands, vegetable stands, and food hubs, in community-supported agriculture, in local organic growing. These all provide opportunities for people to become more of a participant in the food system, even if they're not a farmer, rather than just an observer. Because if you're just an observer, then you have to depend on somebody else to verify for you if the food is safe or not. And I don't want to overstate that. There's only so much you can do because the industrial food system is so huge and vast. But I would like to see us move more in that direction as we think about policies and education in the coming decades. Mm-hmm. And you wrote an interesting opinion piece for the New York Times, I believe that was back in 2014, where you were talking about should FDA label natural, right? This debate has been going on for right. a long time. Nobody can decide exactly what natural means. And I think actually USDA has a stronger definition than FDA. But you argue that no, we really need to stop relying so much on the label and know more about the process. I do. I do try to make that case, and I try to make that case in the book. I also always like to follow it that I'm I'm a pluralist, and I almost never advocate an either-or scenario. So I don't think we should ignore labels or ignore the ability to properly explain what's in a product. I think we always need to do that. I worry that the tendency is to over-rely on that, which is a product-based approach. And instead, and as with that op-ed piece, I'm forgetting the specific language of it, but I was trying to make this point, like, you can argue all you want about whether or not they should label it natural, but that is such a cultural decision. There's so much culture inside nature that I don't even know what you're going to be talking about if you decide to stamp it with a nature stamp. Right. Um, and that's, that's at the center of this pure adulteration debate is people wanted to say that their food was pure or on the opposite, people wanted to claim that it was adulterated. And they were always arguing about something else. It wasn't so much just the product. It wasn't the thing at the end of the line. I have a line in there that I think pervades the whole book, and it's that trusting food means trusting people. And we need to work on the trusting people part if we want to be able to trust our food. We can't just hold out and hope that eventually this perfect pure food is going to arrive or this perfect natural label is going to tell us that everything is good and right because that's going to raise all kinds of other issues. Right. And I'm not prepared to answer, like, what? I'm not, nor as an agency, like, what does natural mean? We haven't done it yet in human history. I don't think we're going to solve it with an agency. You know, I'm so glad you brought up the word trust because as I was reading this book, I thought, wow. I wonder how he feels about trust. And after learning so much about fraudulent activities in our food system, it must make you a bit more leery. It does. You asked earlier, I think the first question at the top of this is what led me to to work on this. And I'll give a different answer now, which is I think by nature, I'm always skeptical about knowledge claims. Not because I think I know, but because I think I don't know. And that, in many ways, led me to find this story. And so I don't know if if I'm more leery as much as I've come to understand a little more about why I'm leery or why I'm skeptical. And it's hard to find that line, and I try to find it between skepticism and cynicism. I feel like I avoid the cynicism part, but I do carry myself or think through these systems with a skeptic's eye, like, is, are they giving me the honest truth? Is this the genuine article? And, you know, as a backup to that, like, how do I know? Why do I trust them? Why are they credible? Where did their authority come from? Based on what conditions? Based on what evidence? Can you explain those things to me? And that's where I'll get my trust from. Mm-hmm. The epilogue of your book is the persistence of adulteration. And because we had talked about this idea of trust and the natural label, I can give you a a modern day scenario where nature or natural and of course the color green is on a lot of packages as well as non-GMO. And I think that consumers, when they buy something that's natural, they don't expect it to contain 
residues of a very popular herbicide glyphosate, which comes from the Roundup Ready crops that are ubiquitous in our farm belt. Right. And so I think that a lot of lawsuits have actually been successful in saying to manufacturers, even though we don't have a bona fide definition of natural, they're not so ready to put natural on that label because they fear the lawsuit that, yeah, you know, if there's a, an herbicide residue in here, we could get taken to court. Yeah, and one of the things that comes up, especially in that epilogue, I'm glad you asked about it, is the sense of natural of it's just not right or they shouldn't be doing that. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, natural, not just in the material sense, like of the environment, that it comes from the environment, which I'm also on board with, but natural in that moral sense of what's the right way to do something, don't go against nature, would be an answer to that. Because that's so thorny, I want to keep asking or keep working on how we decide who gets to make that decision. Like, how do we invest our authorities with the ability to draw the line between what counts as in and what counts as out? Like, how much residue is okay or is it zero residue? Because those um, unintentional contaminations still exist, you know, 150 years later. You can think of, this isn't relevant to the glyphosate example, but you know, like, uh, spoilage is a natural process. Mm-hmm. Foods are going to spoil. Rot and spoiling is a fundamental aspect of all organic beings. And so, is the food too old and it started to spoil and does that count as contaminated? Like, that's a, a different set, a different kind of category, but it's still under the same umbrella of, I don't think you should be selling that. You know, right. Like sell by date. And when you have that larger category of what are you supposed to be selling, it's hard to it's hard to police that on a one to one thing. So we end up coming up with labels and we end up carrying forward our ideas of when we think there's enough intervention and when we think there's too much intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think like that I'm sorry, the the I don't know, I was good I'm starting into the interview, I was gonna ask back that that line of like when it's too much intervention this is something I, I speak about in the in the epilogue of there's a line when you know we're always manipulating something all agriculture is the manipulation right. of a, a non-human thing and so we're fine in most cases but like with the residue from Roundup or genes that are from a different organism those are interventions that many people deem are, are too far and to me the question is how do we decide what too far is? And do we just use science, which is one conclusion of the era of adulteration, is that purity becomes a scientific concept, something we can measure and analyze. But can we also use experience and familiarity and culture and dietary tradition and family practices? There, there are other ways to get at it, but they provide different answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there's a big difference between intentional contamination or intentional adulteration for profit motive versus the unintentional, I won't even use the word adulteration here, I'll use the word contamination, unintended consequences of, say, I always think about cookware, for example, where you might get copper in too much copper in food if you use a certain kind of cookware or in some kind of processing where you unintentionally have an ingredient in that food that you didn't intend to. And, you know, through scientific analysis, then we can find it and we can say, okay, we got to change the methods for for the health of the public. But we've got a situation here, Dr. Cohen, where we just have like a couple of minutes left. And there's so much in your book. I want to give those minutes to you. What do you want to make sure our listeners know from your huge body of work? Oh, that is the big question. I, I'm fascinated, or the thing that I learned the most from writing this book and doing the research was how prevalent and how dominant the cultural questions were that preceded any of the food or agricultural questions. What I mean is those questions of deception or trust or faith or doubt those were widespread uh, culturally at the time, and people imported those pre-existing concerns over trusting one another into the ways that they are about trust.
that, you know, this is, they called it the Gilded Age, at least in U.S. history, and, and this is a Mark Twain quote, the Gilded Age, one of his books. And he meant it as, like, it's a, it's a thin gold covering that's faking you out, that's um, hiding the true rot that exists underneath. And that sensibility of not trusting what you see, like, is what you see what you get, led people on a personal level to really question all their interactions and then the pure food debates are within that larger cultural debate. And I, I give that as my as a comment here because that to me is, is timeless. Like that's what we deal with today. It's not just a, a question of the environment. It's also a question of, uh, and it's not just a question of scientific analysis. It's really at the root a question of how we build these mechanisms to restore faith, to build trust, to avoid doubt, so that we feel like we can be honest people living in an honest world. And I think if we're not grappling with that, then we're not going to be able to get at these specific food issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a terrific book. We've got to close. We're out of time. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Benjamin Cohen, environmental historian, author of a terrific book titled Pure Adulteration, Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food. He is an associate professor at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. I will provide links that show maps of how adulterated food traveled around the world. I will provide a link to his excellent websites. And I just want to thank you so much for this incredible body of work. I want to thank you for the time to talk about it. It's really, this is uh, really enjoyable. Thank you.
Portland on 90.7 FM in the Portland area and all over the world at kboo.fm. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM.